live. Yeah. It's a new season, new things. How about that music? Oh, man. So cool to have like homebrewed, you know, yes. stuff. No more like, you know, stock stuff. <laughs> On our team, Jeremy mm-hmm. Gloff mm-hmm. creates just amazing music. Look him up. But now he wrote, we got theme music. We're yeah. like the big time. That's how you know you've made it. <laughs> Get out, right? <laughs> like, woo, stick a fork in it. Yeah. So another exciting thing is today on location, um, we're filming our first Stick a Fork in It TV. Yes, yes. yes. Which <laughs> promises to be informative mm-hmm. with a little bit of laughter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and we can't wait for you guys to kind of respond and let us know. So we'll make sure there's a link in that podcast text to mm-hmm. jump right over to YouTube. And uh, we're really excited as well because now once a month, mm-hmm. we're going to be on adding Thomas Mance, our president and CEO, who really is our thought leader, but has this incredible sense of humor we're really going to have a great time with. So you're going to, he's going to kind of, I don't want to say, we're supposed to be co-hosting the show, but we know it's a takeover. So, (laughs) and I'm fine with it. (laughs) I'm fine with it. He can just take over once Mm -hmm. a month, but um, he just has just incredible uh, thoughts about hunger relief partnerships and really things are just going on in our world. So... That's it. Yeah. Very this, this new season is just going to blow up. Definitely. Yeah. Stay tuned for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, Thomas, thank you so much. We're really excited to have you join us, especially his timing. He, his time is so precious. But um, we'll have you introduce our guest today because you guys uh, kind of work together frequently and has for, have for a long time. And we'll run from there. Yeah, thank you. And I am happy to be here for sure. It's wonderful to be a part of the podcast, and I'm excited about our guest today. Uh, maybe I'll start and tell the story of how I met Dr. Himmelgreen. So I had been here at Feeding Tampa Bay for about six months, and one day I read a letter to the edi- editor in the local Tampa Bay Times, and it was a wonderfully eloquent piece about feeding children and how continued cuts in state funding and a thoughtless approach to feeding children was going to have long-term consequences in the community. Really, really well-written piece. And I thought, I have to meet this guy. Mm-hmm. So I found, you know, did a little research, found an email uh, and then a phone number and reached out to today's guest, uh, Dr. David Himmelgreen, Uh, of USF, who I found had spent a significant portion of his uh, career, I guess, which we'll talk about in the work that we're doing, food insecurity. Uh, But more than anything else, uh, we found someone who could mentor us in the work. We knew how to feed folks. Mm -hmm. We didn't know how to approach long-term systems change. And that's really, in many ways, what Dr. Himmelgreen has helped us do. So, David, nice to see you. Yeah. Welcome. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks for hosting us here on campus. Oh, no. Thank you so much for the invitation. So what do you recall? We're going to, of course, ask you a few questions. What do you recall about our very first lunch? We met here near campus. I think it was Mexican. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what do you recall about our lunch? Well, you know, I thought... Aside from I was witty and fun (laughs) and charming and and all those things. Sorry. One of the top 10 lunches you've ever had, clearly. The lunch was a little strange, but aside from that... No, I remember just, uh, you know, we, of course, uh, Thomas talked about what they were doing at Feeding Tampa Bay. I was aware of the organization before he arrived, but, uh, you know, some of his early uh, ideas, embryonic ideas about some of the changes that he wanted to make. And I think the, the thing that impressed me the most was that I, I thought we were, you know, we were really looking at food insecurity as a symptom, as what I think is a social determinant of health. I'm very much interested in, in the relationship between food insecurity and health. 
um, mm-hmm. and ill health. And uh, that, you know, yes, feeding people is really important and it needs to happen, but you really need to get at some of the root causes of why there's so much food insecurity in a country like ours, which is so wealthy and so food rich. Mm-hmm. So that really struck me, and I think that that really launched our relationship from there on. Yeah, I think we had a similar goal in that we felt there was a nobility to feeding people, but there was a responsibility to figuring out how to create long-term change. Uh, and I remember at that lunch, we talked about, is there a way in which we can build a roadmap here towards a much healthier community? Uh, and uh, I remember walking away really energized because I had not met someone that had your skill set, background, mm-hmm. and training uh, before in the work that I had done. Most of what we had ever come up against, as I said, were good souls mm-hmm. applying hard work to a difficult problem. But we suddenly had someone who had insight into how communities deal with food insecurity. And uh, both as we would frame it early on, inside the home and outside in the community. Yeah, yeah sure. So. How, what is it that um, is your work here at USF that leans into food insecurity? Well, for most of my career, I, I really have been looking at food. It wasn't called food insecurity early on in the 1990s, uh, um, but it was that mm-hmm. uh, kind of food scarcity and how that affected people. And I'm really interested in how people tried to manage that food insecurity in lots of different settings, which I could talk about in a minute. Um, and ever since, I, you know, that's been, I, I think, my research uh, portfolio has mostly been on food insecurity and health, looking at different aspects of health, um, you know, biological health, but also social health. And again, the way people attempt to manage food insecurity and how that could be really stressful. Um, so it doesn't just affect one's physical health, but their emotional and their psychological health as well. Um, right. So, yeah, that's what I've said. So that's such a subspecific, and a lot of the insights you've given us about the importance of food in a family we'll talk about in a minute, Mm. but how did you get into such a subspecific as as (laughs) food? Well, first anthropology, and then narrowing it down. (laughs) Right. How how did you get to where you are today? Well, you know, so like a lot of people, I came to anthropology kind of late in my undergraduate career. It's not— What was your first direction? Where well, were you? Well, I was a biology major. I was going to uh-huh. be a marine biologist. Oh. Uh-huh. I grew up by the, the, the ocean, uh, and I loved, the, I loved going out and fishing and, and just looking for marine life. And um, So I started as a, a biology major. I actually completed that major as well— uh, and then, you know, probably like a lot of our students, they discover anthropology, you know, their sophomore and junior year, and they get hooked, and, which is what happened to me. Because the thing with anthropology is it's a very holistic perspective. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in what they call the biocultural approach, what the, the relationship between biology and culture and society and how they interact with each other and can influence each other. Uh, so a lot of my work really revolves around that approach, this notion. Again, it, it, they really call it social determinants of health today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I took on that as a second major, and then I decided to go to graduate school and uh, do my uh, eventually my doctorate in what they call biological anthropology. So if you had to define an anthropologist, how do you define for the rest of us an anthropologist? Yeah, well... Anthropology actually means the study of humans, the study right. of man, 
and really looking at the kind social, of the Margaret Meads of the world. It's the yes. Margaret Meads, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and uh, and it's there are different subfields in anthropology. Mm-hmm. So there there's archaeologists. So in the U.S., archaeologists archaeology is usually in an anthropology department. Uh, so they st- study the material world, past and present. They're cultural anthropologists like Margaret Mead, who study different cultures and culture change. Uh, there are biological anthropologists like myself who, again, look at those biological dimensions of health and well-being, and, but also in the past and present. There's a subfield within biological anthropology called human biology, and that's actually my specific training, looking at kind of biological outcomes in relationship to environmental and cultural influences. Now, are you a teacher who does research or a researcher who teaches? Uh, I, I probably split the two, you know, about half and half. Um, I'm doing less teaching now uh, because a lot I'm doing. There's so many research projects we're involved with, but I love teaching and I want to teach, and uh, so I teach at least one class a semester. So you still find that to be a fun calling? Oh, absolutely! I love interacting with students, and and it's also a conduit, you know, if, first to find out, you know, what students are thinking about today. And I'm actually uh, feel a little more optimistic. You know, the world's a crazy place right now, but you know, I meet a lot of students who are really, yeah, you know, they're really, you know, set on on making changes, improving the world. Uh, but it's also then I they get hooked into some of them get hooked onto what we're doing, and so they then become students of anthropology and sometimes go into graduate school. That's amazing because it's so interesting mm. since meeting you myself. It's mm. so interesting, your work and research and the uh, incredible outcomes, um, which we'll talk about. But tell us a little bit about you. How long have you been here at USF or in Tampa? Like, okay. tell us a little background on you. So I've been here 24 years. Right. Uh, wow. Right. 1998. Uh, prior to that, I was, well, I finished my, my doctorate in 1994, so that says a little bit something about how old I am. <laughs> Uh, then I worked at a community organization in Hartford, Connecticut for about four and a half years called the Hispanic Health Council. And that's where I really did a lot of on-the-ground research and program evaluation, focusing a lot on nutrition. So I had a really yeah. good colleague from the University of Connecticut, and we actually co-founded the University of Connecticut Family Nutrition Program. Um, and one really interesting story was that Early on, Connecticut was one, of, maybe the first state to establish a food security office in its Department of Agriculture. <laughs> and we got to testify before the Connecticut State Legislature to document the level of food insecurity in Tampa, uh, in, I'm sorry, in, in, in Hartford and in Connecticut. And uh, so there were several experts there, and they then established that, uh, that office in that department. Uh, and. Um, and they've been doing a lot of really good work on food, food security ever since. Um, wow, that's awesome. So then you came back here, of course, and then your family. Tell us about, we know a little bit about your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love your family. <laughs> Love your kids. But tell us a little bit about your family. Sure. So my, my, my wife, Nancy Romerdaza, is also an anthropologist. We met in graduate school. Um, and uh, we've worked together a lot on different projects, dating back to our work in Africa. Uh, we, and I can wow. actually talk a little bit about that later because that was really instrumental in, in my thinking and my worldview. Um, 
So it's been really, you know, a lot of people always kid you about, well, what is it like working with your, your spouse, your significant other? And we've actually, it's worked out pretty well. Yeah. Overall we, partnership. Yeah, right. And when we when we gripe, we understand each other. And, <laughs> right. And we also know when to give each other space and mm-hmm. that. And then we have twins, Hannah and Eli, who are 22 years old. And uh, they both, uh, Eli uh, uh, volunteered at Feeding Tampa Bay for a mm-hmm. little while. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just finished his... Uh, his undergraduate degree in kinesiology at UCF, and he just started a graduate program here. Um, he's big time into soccer, so he is actually an intern for the women and men's soccer team at USF. So he he does all of the, uh, you know, they do all of this stati- uh, analyses of, of the athletes. Uh, they wear them, uh, they wear these yeah. monitors, the soccer players, and then he he uploads the data and al- analyzes the data for the team and helps set up for yeah. practices and stuff. And most importantly, what's your daughter doing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm, I wonder. <laughs> Not most importantly, but we're really interested and thankful, but go ahead. Well, she's finishing up at UF uh, with a degree in general, journalism, yeah. and she's also uh, working at Feeding Tampa Bay, helping writing some blog pieces. and yep. uh, yeah. Some and articles. She, yeah, intern some articles. for us. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. And yes. Really, and she's a huge help in our communications yeah, she, department. She's so. really enjoying it. Yeah. So a whole lot of brain power around your dinner table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Try not to talk too much. <laughs> so David, I want to ask a little bit about, I was uh, reflecting when you were sharing about your early work in uh, field, uh, yeah. directly in the field. And you chose to go into academia and research and, and teaching. What were some of the major guideposts along the way? And you mentioned an experience in Africa, but what were some of the things that shaped some of your career choices? What have been kind of the guiding thoughts that you've had about, you know, the work you wanted to do and uh, less about it specifically, but more about this is the pathway I want to take with my career, my education? Yeah, well, I did have the opportunity early on to have a number of experiences Um I worked at Children's Hospital in Buffalo, New York, and we did a really interesting project on on uh, diet and gestational diabetes. Uh, so that was really interesting. I did work in India, uh, in Kashmir, in uh, which is you know uh, a very difficult area to work in because it's contested between Pakistan mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. India. And we actually went up with. Uh, to a village um, that was not on the Indian census, and we did some research on nutritional health of people there. And then I think most notably was my 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 doctoral research in, in Southern Africa. This was in the early 1990s. Um, and for anybody who knows the even a little history in that part of the world, there, you know, you had South Africa, which had the system of a Apartheid, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. which was systematic segregation. Um, so even the first time I went to uh, South Africa, uh, you know, they had separate bathrooms for whites and blacks, and there were a oh, lot wow. of restrictions on 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 black people who lived there. Um, I actually did my dissertation research in Lesotho, which is a tiny little country completely surrounded by South Africa, and uh, but. It, even though it was an independent country, it, I always say the tentacles of apartheid reached into the country. So it was a really interesting time because apartheid was beginning to fall apart. Nelson Mandela, mm-hmm. uh, who is one of my heroes, was released from jail. Um, and I think it affected a lot of the way I saw the world, but also my research. What I realized is, you know, at a very local le- level, people are affected by by 
larger forces than themselves, uh, including things like apartheid, which right. separa separated a lot of families in Lesotho and had implications for food insecurity. So um, I was in the field for 14 months, living in a very rural area, isolated area. We did work in five different villages and studied households over the course of a year. And we were really interested in how different types of households coped with seasonal food scarcity, what we would call food insecurity mm -hmm. today. And some households did better and others did worse. And what we found was uh, that, in fact, uh, female-headed households, women who were on their own, had a lot of autonomy, who tended to be better educated than men in, this, in Lesotho. Uh, they were better off nutritionally because they were earning money. Mm. They weren't relying on agriculture, which was really risky in this part of the world. You could lose your crop very, crops very easily. Mm -hmm. So it really shaped my worldview uh, to this day and left really big impression on me. Um, and in 2019, we took our family there to the field site where we did our work. We still have friends there 30 years mm -hmm. now. That's and awesome. uh, our kids have traveled a lot with us over the years. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time in Costa Rica and other places. But they said this was the, the most powerful trip they ever took because they got to see, um, you know, a very different life, but a lot of commonalities, too. Mm. Um, and I think that's what anthropology is about. You know, we're all human beings. We have a lot in common, but we also need to celebrate our differences. Yeah, we could spend the rest of the show talking about why the same basic humans continue to fight over everything. But <laughs> uh, so you mentioned uh, some uh, experiences that shaped you, and you, you mentioned uh, Mandela. Who also shaped your thinking? Who is someone or who are people that influenced how you approach the work that you do? Yeah, so I had a really good friend in graduate school who was from Lesotho, his name was Michael Matsumignani, and he was studying industrial engineering at uh, the University of Buffalo, where I went to graduate school. And we just became really good friends. And he invited me to go to the, you know, to his home, and uh, and uh, this was in the late 1980s. And he had a huge impact on me. I mean, first of all, I I would not have been able to do the work that I did there without his invitation. And I, along with a, a, a friend of mine, um, you know, we were in Southern Africa and in Lesotho for two months, the first visit. And we, again, learned so much and spent a lot of time with Michael. Um, he, he passed away, but he was the director of the only polytechnic in the country. He was an industrial engineer. Um, wow. So he had a big influence on me. And then, of course, you know, there were mentors. Um, my, my major advisor, all of those folks had a big influence on me. Is there someone that you're drawn back to time and again that you continue to think or rethink about lessons learned or influence and impact? I, I often share about a gentleman that mentored me when I first became a manager, and he he comes back to me time and again. I'll think about certain things George shared with me. Mm. And so probably, you know, I mature and change, so my perception of his lessons also shift. Uh, are there people or circumstances that you continue to be drawn back to to say, you know, this is kind of the theme that has run through my life? Yeah, yeah. So as I said, when I finished up my, my doctorate in 94, I went to work at this community-based organization 
uh, in Hartford. And the director happened to be uh, an anthropologist. He was the director of research, and uh, his name is Merle Singer. And he has been instrumental in developing a theory that we use to study the interaction between the social environment and health and well-being. Uh, this is uh, syndemic theory, we call it. And I've talked a little bit yes, about it. Yes, you have. Uh-huh. And he actually... I've learned a little bit here. Yeah. Bit. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we, during the time, this was in the middle 90s, and we did a lot of research on food and nutrition. At the time, HIV AIDS was really, uh, you know, ravaging uh, a lot of inner city communities, including mm-hmm. Hartford. And he really came up with a way of thinking about these interactions between disease and the environment that people live with it. Why is it some, some folks are at much higher risk for these diseases than others? Uh, so, yeah, I still keep in touch with him. I read all of his research, and he asks me to contribute yeah. to his work as well. So, yeah. It's funny how you get along further in life and you realize that there are some themes that you continue to wrestle with and think about that you probably came across when you're young, but you they continue to manifest themselves in your life in a variety yes. of different ways. One last thing uh, about y- you and your career, right? So you mentioned that there's a little more tread off the tire. Uh, <laughs> have you ever thought about going back out into the field full time? No, no. I, I think, you know... I Those days are past? Yeah, I mean, I still <laughs> would do small projects, and I have some colleagues in South Africa and Costa Rica. We may teach a, a, a program for undergraduate students in Peru next year, but um, they're going to be short programs. Uh, most of my research now is, uh, is local, yeah. and that's just the function of time, I mm-hmm. think, and also the need, I think, as mm-hmm. well. Right, and the partnerships. So... You traveled, you mentioned you traveled with your family. Mm. I'm really curious, um, what was your favorite, you know, of course, we've got to lean back into food a little bit. What can you think of that was your favorite food experience in your travels with your family? <laughs> oh, boy. Mm-hmm. There's lots of them. But I you think, can name a few yeah, today. so, you know, we used to do this program in Costa Rica for about 15 summers. Uh, wow. And our kids, the first time they were there, they were 16 months old. And so we take students, it's a community health, uh, what we call field school, basically a study abroad course. Mm-hmm. But there was this great little restaurant down in this tiny village, and they used to uh, raise their own tilapia. And they had an open-air restaurant, um, and they would, you could pick out your fish, Mm -hmm. and they would fry it up with lots of lime and cilantro and potatoes and uh, whatever was available in terms of fruit and other veggies, and sit outside and look at this waterfall in the distance. And so we used to love doing that. It was just so peaceful. It also, you know... I met a lot of folks who are really great entrepreneurs. You know, this little restaurant was in the middle of nowhere, but there was a lot of a lot of tourists go to Costa right. Rica, and they made a pretty good business at it. Because out of it, it was a, you know it's a unique setting, and it was just you know it's one of these places you go and there's no rush to leave. You mm-hmm. could spend two three hours and. Um, and you know the servers aren't trying to get you out to get to serve to get right yeah the next table. 
what an amazing experience for your children for 15 years, mm. right? And what an influence um, to be in, in service and experience a country. It's just what they did every summer, right? It was mm. their life until 15. Um, you know, how at 15, did it stop in transition? I'm just curious. Or they just got older and being home. No, well, we just stopped. We needed a break from gotcha. it. Right. Yeah. So right. basically, you were taking students. Yeah, gotcha. every year. And that's uh, always very rewarding, but also very challenging. Right. David, we want to talk about our partnership in a minute. But again, one of the things that you've brought up, I, I think, as you know, lived overseas for a couple of years in Russia and interesting food mm. practices culturally as well. When you think about all the different places that you've been, uh, and cultures that you've spent some time trying to understand, learn about. Are there common behaviors that all human beings have around food? Are there things that you could say this translates from you know these particular practices or rituals, although they would have a particular flair in the particular place, but are there ways in which all of us treat food similarly? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's everything from the mundane where you're just having a meal every day and people are sitting together eating and talking and sharing food. Mm -hmm. That's really important to, you know, different uh, practices and, and religious observances where food is central. You know, for most of our history as a species, uh, you know, the food quest has been central and paramount to our existence. We had to find the food we needed to eat. We had to create these cultural practices that would get passed on from generation to generation to make sure people knew how to get the food, how to prepare the food, and the importance of sharing food. Uh, that, I think, is universal and is central to our existence. So. And we've talked about this. Right, it's that meal around the table. Yeah, right. I want to come back to that as a lesson in our work, but mm. that's a great point mm. that it's uh, that the sharing of food. Uh, one of the things I recall from being in Russia, when I was there, they were very, very poor. <laughs> they were just coming out of, of, of the breakup of the Soviet yep. Union. People were remarkably poor. But we had colleagues, uh, we worked with Russian folks, we had colleagues that would invite us into their home, and they would literally give us their last bit of food because they felt that was an honor to do so. Yep. No, the wow. same experiences I've had in Lesotho, which is a very poor country, and you'd go to someone's house and they'd prepare a, you know, they rarely ate meat, but they would, they'd slaughter a sheep or they or a chicken, mm -hmm. uh, um, because you were a guest, and uh, you know it's that important to people to show hospitality and. So when you think about food, and this is a really simplistic mm. way to ask the question. Do you think about food more as nutrition or culture? I think people think about it culturally, yeah. And we know to, there's a big emphasis on nutrition today, and a lot of people know a lot about nutrition. Um, but what really binds people is the, you know, the culture of food, you know, foods that are meaningful to you, that, right. that you grew up with. Um, your, your eating habits, your food habits are formed early on in life, and they stick with you for a long time. Um, so I think it's, it's... What's a food habit? How would somebody know they had a food habit? Well, it's just the things we, 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 we get used to eating mm -hmm. that are important to us that show uh, you know, our gratitude to others, and, but also what makes us feel good. Mm -hmm. right? So we probably all grew up eating certain foods that 
bring back hopefully really pleasant memories. Yeah. The idea of comfort food. Comfort food, right. Mm -hmm. And that's what gets embedded. Uh, and, I, and I think we can all you know, relate to that. I, I remember certain traditions uh, and foods that I ate well growing up. I still eat them today. Mm -hmm. And I, in some respects, I think about them the same way. Mm -hmm. right? So I think really food is what binds us together across cultures. And it is for sustenance. It is for nutrition. But what really... Uh, I think uh, affects us is, is what those foods mean to us. Art, drinks, food, impact. Join us at Armature Works on October 25th for our upcoming event, Empty Bowls. Feed families around Tampa Bay during our interactive happy hour where there will be auctions, raffles, live artists, and local musicians. And you can bid to take home adorable handmade bowls crafted by summer campers at the Glazer Children's Museum. That's October 25th from 4 to 5.30 p.m. Purchasing a ticket gets you complimentary beverages and hors d'oeuvres and creates about 175 meals for our neighbors in need. Visit feedingtampabay.org slash empty bowls to purchase tickets for you and your friends. We'll see you there. Yeah, you know, it's a fascinating subject to think about. We, you know, we view food uh, as, as uh, a means to be healthy, right? And we'll talk a bit more about that. But ultimately, the conversation we're having is that food really kind of defines who we are. Yes. Right, both individually, uh, but also as a community. It's uh, when I, uh, uh, on occasion, some of your colleagues will ask me to come guest lecture at their classes. And, uh, and uh, because it's college kids, you want to have a warm-up question, right, to get them kind of connected to what you're going to discuss. And I often will ask, maybe somewhat indelicately, but college kids love it. If you're on, if you're on death row... What's your last meal? Mm -hmm. Like you got one, right? Mm -hmm. Interestingly, they'll always choose between two things. One is a family memory, right? So it's a particular meal. They'll say, I'll have lasagna that my Italian grandmother used to make, right? right. So they, you know, others will have a food that tastes in a particular way and makes them feel mm -hmm. a particular way. Now, of course, because they're on death row, nobody's worried about nutrition. <laughs> uh, but, but the interesting thing is how people come back and relate to food. And I think one of the great insights that you've given us over time is understanding how important food is culturally to the folks that we serve. I think for a long time, we felt good about our work if we were providing volume Right. If you had asked us, what's your standard of success in our work, we would probably, even though we wouldn't use this word, have said volume. And I want to talk about a little bit about our first research study uh, as a way of having a conversation maybe about how we have evolved uh, based on what you've taught us to understand the importance of food. So you'll recall uh, the very first studies we ever did uh, were around our backpack program. For our listeners, years ago, teachers came to food banks and said, on a Monday morning, I can't teach a child. They are so food insecure. They've got all kinds of challenges. I can't get their attention. They're unstable, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally. They're just, can you help? 
And so food banks developed a concept of backpack programs, and literally on a Friday night, you would fill a backpack with food, and the teacher would identify the child inside the school that would be need, you know, have the need for a backpack. And it was tried to be a, that's why it was in a backpack, because it was meant to be dignified so the child could take the food home. We'd done these for years. And we had uh, thoughtfully grown them and felt good about them. And I recall specifically, I used to pull a bag off the shelf and show donors the little items in there. And they would all be pop-top mm. cans and little things that a child could manage, a granola bar. And we, importantly, we felt good about it, right? But we had this nagging sense over time that we weren't really necessarily taking care of children in a way that we thought. And so we came to you and we said, David, can we, can we study this? Can you help study this? And, and you said, yeah, we'll, we'll put a team on it. And we found a bunch of different findings, but I want you to talk about the two that still resonate in our work today. Yeah. I'll mention the two that have come to my mind. The first is that some 68 or 69 percent of the food was being eaten by the family every Friday. Yeah. So what we perceived as little Johnny or Sally having food through the weekend was a myth. The second thing that we found, which is why I brought this up, is that our food choices were culturally normative to us, but not to those we serve. Can you talk about those things a little bit and how we understand these and how we should think about these? So, yeah, I mean, those are the, I think, key findings. And we went and spoke to the kids and spoke to uh, their parents as well as uh, uh, met with the staff that provided the food, and uh, we all had thought that these backpacks were just for the kids, but we discovered that most of the kids were sharing the food because there was that need in the house, and that was part of the culture, too, that you don't just right. keep the food for yourself. You give it out. A lot of these kids, this was from, you know, they lived in eastern Hillsborough County. Their, their families, their parents were uh, agricultural workers, um, so there were very limited resources. Uh, there were transportation issues. Uh, so they would bring the food and they would share it because that's what you're supposed to do. And then the, the other finding was that, yeah, you know, so as, as I recall, there were things like canned chicken and uh, maybe two granola fish, bars and all of ours and all fine stuff to eat, but not culturally uh, meaningful or appropriate. Uh, and a lot of these... These kids and their families were were Latino, uh, and so they wanted more foods that they could identify with, like rice and beans. Right. And I think that we that was a really important lesson for us. Well, and I think that's the obvious lesson, right, mm. that we learned. But there are two others. Mm. I think again, if you could uh, help us put these in context, one we learned how important the family unit is around food, and you mentioned that a moment ago. But the other thing that we learned, I think, which was such an important moment for all of us, was how important it is to choose your own food, the things that you would bring into your household. Yes, and that's really important. I think since then, that's been the direction a lot of food banks and food pantries uh, have gone, is giving people choice to choose the foods that they want, that they'll use, that are important to them. Um, and that's... You know, we did a, a, another more recent study uh, at, a, at a food pantry, and we, we actually, this was right before the pandemic, we went to people's homes, mm -hmm. 
and we talked about the foods they got from the pantry and what they used, what they may have discarded and, uh, and, um, and gave away. And we found out, you know, that, again, people wanted foods they could identify with, but also there were foods that we were giving them, like eggplants, uh, that they didn't necessarily know what to do with. They not prepare, they've never prepared it. And it wasn't that they, uh, they wouldn't try it. They just didn't know how to prepare it. So uh, what emerged out of that is, is some education about, well, different ways of preparing eggplant or squash. Um, so it, you want to give people choice and also give them the background information they need. Yeah, well, encourage them, if yeah. you will. Right? And let's go one step deeper into this backpack study because, again, it was an important moment for us. So you'll recall... Internally, we said, okay, we can fix this problem. So we started putting cans of stew and soup and other things in the little child's backpack, which created two other problems. One is now the child is lugging home. Right. Their A 30-pound backpack (laughs) filled with cans. But number two, and I still remember this moment, you said to us, you're putting that child in a position where they now have become responsible for their family's food. You can't do that to a kid. Yeah. Talk about that, because for yeah. us, that was a seminal moment in yeah. our thinking yeah. about how to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that is, you know, the responsibility then falls on one person's shoulder. Uh, and that, if that happens to be a child, that could be very stressful. Uh, what we do know uh, from a lot of research is that being food insecure is very stressful um, because there is this responsibility of making sure you have food for all of your household members and you're constantly thinking about that. So why give the, add that burden to a child who has all these other things going right. on in his or Simply her life? Growing. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, yeah. Well, mm. and kids often in stressful situations, this might be a bit out of the purview of our conversation, but kids often in stressful situations adopt much more mature behaviors than yeah. they're really ready for in order to survive. Would, yes. that, would that be a true statement? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So they sometimes uh, become caregivers. In a sense, that's what happened with the, the backpack program, too, because they, they were bringing food home and giving it out to their you know, older relatives, their parents, um, because everyone was food insecure in the house. So I think in a way we probably weren't meet, you know, uh, meeting the purpose of the program, providing food, to kids during the weekend so they come to school on Monday and they're not hungry. Right. Um, it just wasn't happening the way we expected it to. Well, the coda to the story is we no longer do backpacks. We have food pantries inside schools. Yeah. Whole different way to approach it. And interesting, again, we find these things out culturally. We think we're solving an operational or a you know food delivery mm. problem. We approach it that way. But as you know, uh, we put... Um, we have about 75 pantries inside schools, including the first on-campus one. I want to talk about that in a minute. Um, but one of the things we observed after we put about our 30th school pantry in Hillsborough County, the then superintendent of schools shared with us something interesting because the way the pantry works is mom or dad can pick up their child, grab a bag of groceries, and head home. Uh, and Jeff Eakins was the gentleman's name, and he said, you know, we've, we've observed an interesting phenomenon as a result of this. We're building a different level of trust with the families who are getting food from us. So suddenly we have a different relationship with that family and with that child because now 
you know, and I guess this is part of what you talked about before, the binding element of food, the relationship it creates, the trust that it can create, the cultural divide it can bridge. Yep. That is an example of what we call social glue. It brings people together. There's And there's a reciprocity that's created out of that. You know, you help me, I'll help you kind of thing. Uh, there is a level of trust and understanding. Um, you know, providing people with a meal, they f- they feel a little bit closer to you. They feel that they can trust you a little bit more. And I think that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, the Feeding Tampa Bay has done so well uh, in recent years. And, and a lot more people know about the organization because there is a, a bond. There is a trust that has been created. It's not just a matter of getting giving out food. People feel, you know, connected with the, with the organization. Hmm. Then you think about there's one thing that we left out is the success of the children now being able to have access to that food. Their parents and there are there and trust those teachers and administrators, and they're just doing much better. Yeah, and I think, you know, uh, uh, for us, you know, we as an organization want to move from the concept of outputs to the concept of outcomes. What do we want to have happen in the lives of those we're privileged to serve? And I think, again, the work that you've helped us do over the past nine years, plus years. Uh, and let's let's dive into that last big subject. So if you'll recall back to that, uh, that star-crossed lunch <laughs> 10 years ago, you and I sitting a, over at the Mexican restaurant and uh, diet sodas and uh, some Mexican food. Um, we had a conversation where I shared with you that we as a food relief organization did not have enough information and could not really understand impact, outcomes. We knew how to count outputs, but we didn't really have a way of trying to understand what was happening, as I said earlier, inside the home or inside the commu- or outside the community around food relief. There just wasn't enough scholarship. And so let's talk a little bit about what we refer to lovingly internally as catfish. (laughs) (laughs) So talk to us a little bit about the vision and dream that you had. And, of course, give everybody the right name for the organization. (laughs) We like catfish. Easy to remember. She was coined by one of my friends. And maybe even start with help folks understand why a research institute on a university campus matters and its importance. So, uh, you know, as Thomas said, you know, we, we met, uh, I think it was 2013, and we started working together in 2015-16. The university and Feeding Tampa Bay signed an MOU, uh, an agreement to work together to partner on addressing food insecurity in Tampa Bay. And then um, I decided, and this was uh, in 2019-20, in to set up a center. It's the Center for the Advancement of Food Security in Healthy Communities. It's a mouthful, but it... <laughs> catfish. It, yeah, catfish. <laughs> it captures, you get it. It, it, captures <laughs> it, it all, right? And basically, the goal of, 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 of the center is, one, to do research and evaluation, to work with community organizations like Feeding Tampa Bay, provide technical expertise, um, and, you know, we work with a number of organizations in the area, so even small little not-for-profits who need data to show what they're doing is working, we help them with that. Um, And the second piece of it is to raise awareness about food insecurity and that uh, it 
affects a you know diverse audience of our residents or a diverse you know community here, and uh, it's not just people who are living at poverty or below right. the poverty line. We know, especially today, a lot of uh, middle-income households are food insecure. Uh, uh, with the pandemic and disruptions in the food supply chain, uh, inflation, uh, you know, there is a great need. Uh, those numbers aren't really coming down. So we hold symposia and workshops to, that are related to food insecurity. Um, we, we had a really great panel uh, last year on food insecurity among college students. It's a very high level of food insecurity. Uh, among college students across the nation. And then the third piece of it is, is uh, well, the third piece is training the next generation of researchers and advocates uh, for food insecurity or to address food insecurity. And some of our students have gone on to work at places like Feeding Tampa mm -hmm. Bay, and that's been great. Uh, and then the last piece of it is, is you know, developing new programs and evaluating those programs. Uh, so food as medicine is a really good example of that. We could talk about that if you want. Um, you know, uh, again, focusing on the relationship between food and health uh, among high-risk populations, people who have chronic diseases. There are what we call a lot of diet-related chronic diseases that result from food insecurity. So by providing food assistance uh, uh, that includes nutritious foods, we can then help people manage whatever condition they might have. And we have some really interesting, promising results from some of those studies we've been doing. So as far as we know, of course, there's a chance for you and I to pat each other on the back. Mm -hmm. We started the first university food bank yes. partnership. And certainly the center is the first of its type in, uh, in a community uh, around food security. Um, and we've, I think at this point, you have published how many papers now have been I, the stand, the gold standard in, in your world is a published, accepted <laughs> peer, peer right, review. Peer reviewed papers, uh -huh. a whole, uh, you know, probably uh, 20 papers, yeah. maybe more, right. and then technical reports. Yeah. Which importantly, what we're putting out into the community, what the center is putting out into the community is established scholarship that helps communities, organizations understand how to ultimately work to change their own community. Question for you about the center. What's your vision for from here? We heard the purposes, right? What it's set up to do, but what's your vision for it as we move forward? What is your hope that it becomes or does? Well, I wanted to grow. I wanted us to work with more organizations, um, including Feeding Tampa Bay, on program development and evaluation. I think that's really important. Um, as I said before, there are a lot of students who are interested in this topic now. I think, if nothing else, the pandemic really raised, uh, you know, uh, uh, awareness about food insecurity and the degree to which it affects people. So training students, uh, providing the technical expertise to organizations so they can study it and also get funding. As we all know, funding is hard to come by, and you need to have data that says this works or it doesn't work or this is how we can make it work better. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's really we want to grow in, in doing more outreach and uh, providing the research expertise that a lot of organizations need help with because they don't have the resources. They don't always have the funding to have an um, you know, a research team uh, on staff who can 
can do that right. work. Would you ultimately see this as a degreed program here at USF? I don't know if I'm even using the right nomenclature <laughs> yeah. there, but is there a way that food security ultimately becomes a degreed program? It could be. I mean, I think the starting part would be like a certificate program where mm-hmm. students would take a few courses and get a certificate in food and security studies or research. We're already, uh, I'm working with a colleague in public health to develop a course on food insecurity. Uh, yeah, so degrees take yeah. a long time, sure. but we could, you know, the the next step would be able to would be a certificate program. And I understand. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's okay. So you mentioned other partners that you would like to work with. Does someone apply uh, to have you guys help them out, or is it something that you seek other organizations? Uh, it's I think a, both. both. Mostly they, okay. you know, because of word of mouth. I, Frankly, mostly because of all the work we've been doing with you guys, they hear about us and then they reach out to us. So we've been working with uh, Tampa Family Health Centers. Uh, We just got a new project, uh, USDA funding for a project to, that's going to be a combination uh, gardening and nutrition education program in St. Pete. Um, So, yeah. And you've gone national. Well, we're we're tr- well. We might we might be. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> yeah. we'll, have to, we'll have to edit the. Uh... Actually, I should say we we actually have. Uh, last summer, we did a project with Feeding America National was to do uh, an evaluation and write a playbook on uh, uh, um, a pilot. It was a pilot uh, uh, home food delivery program. Uh, one of the locations was feeding Tampa Bay, the other one was feeding South Florida. Mm-hmm. So we wrote up the playbook for uh, for Feeding American National, and they then disseminated uh, that playbook to all of the 200 food banks wow. in the country. And we're hoping we'll do some more work with National in the, in the near future. So all of this really started over lunch with Thomas with Mexican food. <laughs> yes, yes. Which he is has, pretty he incredible. Has this effect on, on <laughs> right? You know, importantly, and we say this, David, but I think, you know, I joke about the meal, but the, you know, the meal is a bonding moment, yeah. yep. right? You and I have now been working together for nine years. And we often say, right, everything good in life begins around a table. Yeah. Right? So we come back over and over again to mm-hmm. this fundamental idea that nutrition is about health. Right, we could talk about that part all day long, but the part I think that's so intriguing to all of us is everybody has a relationship with food, mm-hmm. and that food is a binding element for them, which has really been kind of your life's work is understanding how all of that comes together in different places and in different cultures and with different people. Yes, yes, most definitely, yeah. and in in lots of different contexts. So, you know, I've done a lot of work, for example, looking at immigrant populations who come to the U.S. and how that impacts their diets. Uh, Oh, surely. Wow. And how people, on the one hand, want to hold on to their traditional foods and meals, but on the other hand, they also want to be part of the great American experience. So, And sometimes there's a tension there. We see that a lot with between parents and kids. Kids come here. They want the burgers and the hot dogs and the oh, pizza. they adapt and adopt early. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yumminess. And the parents them. want them to, you know, have the, you know, the arroz con pollo and uh, right. Um, right. So that makes for an interesting uh, discussion. A Big too. Mac or goulash? Yeah, right, 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 exactly. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm go with toy. Big Mac on that one. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, no, that really is, I, and, and that's the most interesting part of this. Yeah, the food insecurity and health is really important. 
We want people to be healthy. We want them to be food secure. You can't have one without the other. But on the other hand, it's it's what brings people to get, food is what brings people together, and that's that's what we should really f- try to focus on to get to those better health and food security. Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of food, we have a yep. couple of questions we're going to yes. ask you. Mm-hmm. Okay. On, on our closing of the show, okay. we have a few questions. You talk about being around the table. We've talked about your family traveling. But if you, what's your favorite meal at home around the table, and who's the best cook? Well, I can right off the bat, I'm the best cook. Whoa. There you go. Yeah. Nancy? Right? He's got She's a listening. whole mini kitchen in here. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I do actually most of the cooking, although yeah. my kids are doing more now. And as they should be, yeah. as they should be. What is your favorite thing to cook? Oh, that's really what difficult meal? to answer. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, there's so many. <laughs> it could be more than like, one. Yeah, well, there's one meal that I grew up with. Okay. I'm not Italian, but I remember as a kid, and again, this is something about how old I am, <laughs> you know, Every year, we used to watch The Wizard of Oz on, you know, we had three or four stations in New York, and and my mother would always, it was the one time a year she'd let us sit in front of the TV, and she'd make spaghetti and meatballs mm-hmm. while we watched uh, The Wizard of Oz. So I still love spaghetti and meatballs. Don't <laughs> and, eat it as often as I do And it goes now. back to that memory, which exactly. is beautiful. Fabulous yeah. comfort food. Yes, yes. Yeah. All right. The next question. Okay, so spaghetti and meatballs. Next question is... You can have a dinner dinner for four, and you can have three other guests. They can't be your wife and children. Three other guests at your dinner table. Who are you inviting? They can be with us or not with us any longer. Right. But three people at your dinner table. Who do you invite? Yeah. Oh boy, that's that's a tough mm-hmm. question. Well, um, one would be my dad, who passed away three years ago. Um, he loved food, and mm-hmm. uh, he was, you know. He always brought home lots of great food. Uh, second would be uh, um, a dear friend of mine, also who just passed away. It was my my colleague in graduate school, who also who I traveled with to Lesotho. He just died yes. last month, and uh, he was from Buffalo, New York. And boy, we we love to go out for chicken wings. <laughs> and before they became so popular, <laughs> and the third person would be, hmm, uh, that's that's really tough. You know, people, uh, you know, who who passed away. Probably my grandmother, yeah, uh, who f- was from. Uh, well, her parents were from Eastern Europe, from Russia too. And this is my mother's mother, and she made the best lamb stew when I was mm. growing up. Not hmm. something you eat that often now, yeah. but well, she was a great cook. And again, one of these, you know. One of these people who didn't have recipes, she just cooked by right. memory. And, Put it together. Uh, so I think it's these people who passed It's interesting away. that, you know, so often when you ask this question, people answer with a variety of celebrities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Uh, for you, it's all about the folks in your life that influenced you and that are important yeah. for you to have comfort around a table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Yeah. Celebrities would be nice, but you know, yeah. some, it could go well or not, right? <laughs> right? You know what you're getting if you. Right, right. I like to play it safe. <laughs> well, Dr. Hamilgreen, thank you so much for hosting us. Thomas, first show in. Mm. Thank you. Glad to be for here. For lending your voice. Of course, always, Ev. And the last question I'm going to go around the entire table flats or drummies? Oh, drummies all day. Yeah. Drummies. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Tom's like, what are we talking about? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> with wings. What? With chicken wings. Do you eat the flats or the drummies? Oh, definitely drummies. See? Oh, why do you call it's them chi- flats? Because that's what you call them. Yeah, I don't know why they're called flats, but they I are. Yeah. yeah, definitely <laughs> drumsticks all the way. That's, it must be a if girl thing because it's flats. If you put that much investment into something, you want a return <laughs> for the investment. Ooh. You have to work for it, yeah. Nope, right? I'm a flats yeah. girl. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you guys for listening to us once again. Don't forget, we have Stick a Fork in It TV coming. Stay tuned. And uh, we will leave how you can get a hold of Dr. Himmelgreen and um, his research. He's done amazing work. He's changed food banking and how we address food. And it has been a privilege of mine um, to work in this arena. We'll talk to you next time, friends. Thank you. You can learn more about Feeding Tampa Bay and how to join the movement at feedingtampabay.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and TikTok at Feeding Tampa Bay.